welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I'm delighted to bring you a conversation here with Dr. Elizabeth Churchill. Elizabeth is a senior director at Google, and we recorded this interview while we were both at a conference, the CHI Conference Computer Human Interaction Conference in Hamburg, where she also was awarded a SIGCHI Lifetime Service Award that was really well-deserved. We don't get to talk about her service so much here as we ran out of time, but we did get to talk a lot about her insights and experiences in building good team cultures, in managing diversity and all that comes with that, in how we go about onboarding for global teams. And she also introduces us to some management frameworks that she's found particularly useful in her work. And she shares her journey from a psychology background to working in big tech and in particular at the infrastructure level that she's concerned with now. And what she was looking for in moving between companies and what was the the red thread that motivated these moves. And a lot of this was around her love of people and of being challenged and continually learning. I think there are so many useful insights here that will be relevant for all of us. And in particular, for anyone who has responsibility for managing or leading other people So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Elizabeth Churchill. Elizabeth, I really appreciate you having a chat with me today. And we're sitting at the Computer Human Interaction Conference, which is our main conference in our field. And you've just been awarded the Lifetime Service Award. So congratulations. Thank you. Thanks so much. And yeah, thanks for having a chat. And it's so lovely to be in person at a conference. It is, isn't it? When was the last time you were... So I, I was at New Orleans last year, but before that, you know, yeah. we were just in lockdown, yeah. weren't we? Yeah. Um, but this is very nice because a lot more of the European colleagues have come mm. because they weren't able to come mm. to New Orleans. Yeah. So I feel like it's a different cohort yeah. uh, we're hanging out with here. And there's a different energy, isn't there? Yeah. They're sort of like people are so happy to be back together. Things that we might have normally complained a little bit about, there's less of that and there's just more of the enjoying seeing people and connecting yeah the gratitude for being able to actually be Mm, together yeah i think the pandemic has really changed how we appreciate friendships Mm. and you know for this community where folks have known each other for a long time like as you and i have um it's just so really feels so good yeah to be coming back to the village yes even though it's a huge village it's an increasingly (laughs) growing village yeah It's an interesting aspect of being part of an academic peer community is that sense of being part of a community, a village um, (laughs) of people that you do know. I know that I often say to PhD students when they attend a doctoral colloquium or something, these are going to be your colleagues for the rest of your career in a way. Right, yeah. And uh, they will help you through the highs and the lows. They will celebrate um, and they will lift you up when you're down. I mean, that's certainly been my experience being part of this community. Mm. Yeah, yeah, lots of good parts to it, even though there are also lots of challenging parts. But uh, for people who don't know you, if there is anyone listening who doesn't (laughs) know you, uh, do you want to just give a brief introduction to yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm currently a Senior Director of User Experience at Google, um, and I've worked in a number of different industry contexts. Mm. been at Google eight and a half years at this point, Um, and I was at eBay before that, and... um, Yahoo before that, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, Xerox Park, and Fuji Xerox, um, and originally British, but living in the States for a long yeah. time, um, but uh, always focused on uh, collaboration and communication technologies, mm. and thinking about uh, how we can support people collaborating, and at the moment I'm looking at how we can support developers who are creating the next generation operating system. Mm. So looking at tools for wow. developers. 
Um, so are you in the research side or more of the delivery side, the technical development side or it's what, a bit, a business bit of both. side? Mm. A bit of both. Mm. So I've always tried to span both, mm. um, keep up the research side, both in terms of understanding what the innovations are in the space, mm. but also in terms of pushing the boundaries a little bit and using much more of a research approach mm. to rethinking what the questions are for right. any kind of tool production right. currently. But it's definitely production, mm. um, and that's why I'm director of UX, mm-hmm. because it's definitely a- around getting tools out there. Yeah. Um, and the engineering team that I'm part of right now has launched um, an operating system uh, in the last couple of years, um, and fairly experimental, but very successful. So mm. I'm definitely in the world of things that go out into the world. And what's that like? Um, it's like interesting. Actually seeing <laughs> stuff go out into the world. Oh, it's, it, that's really exciting. Mm. So when we rolled out the new operating system, um, it went to millions of devices, um, smart screen devices, displays in the home. Mm. And it was just really exciting to be part of knowing that this operating system quietly, silently went out into the world Mm. and, you know, worked really effectively. Mm. And being in the space I'm in, it's very different from the consumer space. Mm. Because in the consumer space, a big splash happens when you launch. Yeah. When you're in the infrastructure place, you really need to have something go out there that nobody notices. You know, you That's success. Sw- nobody that notices. Nobody notices because mm. you didn't disrupt their lives. You didn't oh, pull the rug out from under them. Yeah. You just changed something and they didn't even notice. They might notice something slightly better, but it might be so intangible to them because mm. it's infrastructure mm. that they just don't notice. Wow. So that's a, I had never thought about that as an interesting definition of success because normally it is the, the loud, out there, visible, mark the moment, celebrate. Mm-hmm. And this is the less it's out there, yeah. the, more, the more of a success it is. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you mark the success? Do you have to do more deliberate things around it to, to create it as a, as a moment to be celebrated? Yeah, and I think internally, I I work for a a fantastic person, um, and internally we did a lot of celebrating and a lot of looking at the data around the launch. Mm. And, um, yeah, we all got sort of little gifts, Mm. um, and we had lots of um, team meetings Mm. to really mark this moment. Lovely. Yeah, because you don't have the, the sort of just... You don't have the n- normal markers just yeah. coming in that you can use as celebration points. And that's, that's really lovely that it's done as an explicit thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting because a lot of the teams that I've worked with, you know, um, big celebrations um, and look at us mm. is, are important. Mm. But the team I work in now suits me personally a lot better because we're very humble mm-hmm. and we don't celebrate hubris Mm -hmm. and Mm attention-seeking. We really celebrate excellent quality product and um, the success of the product in people's worlds. So it suits my personality a lot more because, you know, the tech industry can be full of a lot of people who are beating their chests and saying, Mm. and me, and me, and me, and me. Um, And this is definitely a let's make a difference in the world, Mm. let's be humble about it, and let's try and do something audacious. Mm. Mm. I love the audacious word. (laughs) (laughs) What influence have you had on that culture? You said that reflects you, and is it reflecting you because of the way that you've been able to mould and shape the group? A little bit, but I'm more meant it the other way around, which is I'm very comfortable in the culture. Mm. The culture is really set by my VP, Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he has a really strong sense of teams coming together Mm -hmm. towards products. He doesn't value um, big egotistical displays. So I'm very comfortable working for him. And it suits my way of working extremely well. And I think I've had a little bit of a shape on the culture as well. I I report directly to the VP of the whole um, 
effort, organization. Mm. And, you know, we talk a lot about team culture. Mm. And um, one of the things that I've been very much part of is thinking about the operational excellence of the whole 500-person engineering team. That's a tiny team. It is. <laughs> Compared to Google, it is. Oh, is it? Really? <laughs> yes. I suppose it is. An I engineering team. Yeah. But um, so I manage the chief of staff team that does all of the business operational excellence. Mm. Um, and I sit on the culture council. We have a culture council, mm-hmm. which is a grassroots effort. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of the executive sponsors of that. And I'm one of the executive sponsors of um, inclusion. Mm. Um, and diversity and equity and inclusion for the team. And so in those ways, um, again, I'm not driving that culture, Mm. but I'm comfortable with it, immersed in those things being as high a priority as excellent engineering. And we have a great team, really great team. I'd love to hear more about team culture, what you mean by that. So I think, you know, There are team cultures where the final product is the most important Mm. thing, and we certainly have that. But some teams, how you get there doesn't seem to matter. It can be very aggressive timelines, not really caring about whether you burn people out or not, and your eye is on the ball and it's very fast. Mm. Um, Some teams, you know, have not fully addressed inclusion, And I fundamentally believe that the more diverse the team, the better the product. Mm. Um, Because if you create a team that's diverse and where people feel psychologically safe to Mm. speak up and aren't shut down, then you have productive debate, you have respectful difference, and you focus on how do we work together to get the product out. And you focus on long-term sustainability and resilience of the team rather than burning people out, Mm. rather than dismissing people, Mm. and rather than having, you know, a sort of monoculture towards a product. You have a debate, which I think translates into more resilience in the product itself. Um, So Mm. the culture of production Mm. to me is as important as the practice of the application of expertise in the production. Yeah. When you talk about diversity, what sort of dimensions of diversity are you looking for within this particular domain, looking at engineering products? Um, uh, Diversity of background Mm -hmm. is really important. Um, Certainly gender diversity, and that's something we've been actively working on. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Diversity of um, expertise related to background so, you know, we have lots of different kinds of engineering practice mm. and, and mm. skill sets. But we also have a lot of folks who come from the design world. We have a lot of folks who come from the qual and the quant research mm. world. Mm. We have people who come from content strategy and mm. tech writing. And those latter groups report to me. But one of the things that I've been very determined to do is have that human-centered cultural mm. dynamic be mm. part of the whole team. So to come back to the culture council of the 500-person um, organization, we want to hear from people who, you know, again, different backgrounds. We want to make sure that we've got gender representation. We want to ma- make sure that underrepresented groups are around in our, in our team. Uh, we have very particular hiring processes to make sure that we're bringing in not just the first not just my best friend, mm. but we're really looking at, you know, folks from, as I say, very different backgrounds mm. to get those multiple different voices. Yeah. We also have a very strong focus on um, accessibility and inclusion, both accessibility in terms of putting in the right hooks through, um, through infrastructure, technical infrastructure, through documentation to make sure that the Uh, operating system that we're building really comes as a package around accessibility isn't just table stakes it's a number one priority Mm. and turning that on the team itself we also try to have a diverse set of folks on the team who have different accessibility Mm. needs yeah because i think if you have people on the team who understand the importance of screen readers Mm. because 
that's how they do their work, then we understand the importance of making sure that the capabilities for screen readers is something that's so deeply embedded in what we build. Um, So, you know, from any form of Mm. um, different ability, uh, we like to hear from. Mm. So I see the value of of diversity um, in being able to bring in these different perspectives and saying, and let's think about, and let's think about because of people's background or experience or particular access needs. Uh, And diversity also means difference. Yes. And difference often becomes the source of tension and conflict because there is difference. Yes. In what ways, you know, does that play out or what's the culture? You talked about psychological safety and being, being okay to speak up. In what ways or how do these productive tensions get worked out or what's your experience of them this is a very bad question (laughs) (laughs) I don't quite know what I'm asking but Um, these things are really important and they do come up so very concretely you know you might have somebody this has not happened but it's just a Mm. hypothetical case you might have somebody saying why are we spending so much time thinking about screen readers we don't need them right and you've got another person who says um, yeah, we really do need to think about it because accessibility is my big thing. Um, then you, you, know, you sit down and you say, all right, well, what we know from the world around accessibility is that many innovations have come out because we have designed for people who are other-abled, who have mm. low vision, for example. And a lot of those insights have actually led to understanding how like, you know, s- screens and changing font sizes and... Um, from, you know, text to speech and all of these things that have really helped everybody in the population, no Mm. matter how your abilities are laid out, wherever they are. Mm. And so getting people to understand that, you know, what is the real thing that you're concerned about if if you don't want us to invest in thinking about screen readers? Oh, you're feeling a lot under pressure that you need to deliver. Mm. What can we do to bake in time so that the pressure on you isn't so palpable that you're saying, I don't want to do this thing because it's not directly important. What is the pressure that's happening? Mm. And, you know, you're on the accessibility side. What is the pressure that you feel to push so hard? What what is table stakes for you? And what is just one step beyond table stakes? Mm. So you start to help have people understand that where the dissonance is, is often about the expression of a different pressure that they're feeling. Yes. Time pressure to delivery, um, you know, advocacy pressure um, to make sure there's representation. And actually both of these are important pressures that are really around the timelines, milestones and timeframes that as a leadership team, you're putting people under and within which they're operating. Mm. So... As a leadership team or as a manager, what one needs to do is unpack where is the dissonance, mm. what is the ultimate goal, and focus on the ultimate goal is we want as many people to use our product as possible mm. in a, as, with as little friction as possible because we want to have major impact. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. So let's have a look at why these things, which we believe are important, are in conflict, mm. and where can we change you know, the directions there? Where can we bake in more time? Where can we improve the communication around the advocacy request or demand such that the the program of work that this other person is under, the pressure, actually is, they're supported, they're supported in doing that work. So it's really around zooming out and understanding where people are coming from um, emotionally. And and I, I think... You and I both have a training which is very human-centered, and we fundamentally understand that you know people are operating under a lot of pressures and constraints. They have visions, they have perspectives where they feel they do or don't have agency. But I think a lot of folks, especially in engineering, don't understand that a lot of conflict comes from those sources, yeah. but it manifests. Yes in this content level yes or the strategy level and you've just demonstrated the most skillful handling of of 
potential conflict or tension in not taking the the content issue that has been vocalised as the thing. Yeah. And the wisdom in actually and the skill in actually helping people navigate to what's this all about really yeah mm-hmm. and and where's our common ground and restarting from that point that's yeah. just that's just a role model in how to do this well it's not always easy <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> but i have to say i mean i feel very lucky and privileged i work on a team where um we have so many people who are very literate in the um, emotional dimensionality of humans. Mm. Um, And so there's a lot of folks who are there to call upon. We just had a team meeting um, just recently where there were about 85 people and we're all mostly virtual. Um, And we had divided people to debate something pretty critical into different subgroups. And uh, I was very intentional about who I put into each of the subgroups and I worked with my program manager <clears throat> and the other person I was, I was running the thing with who was uh, a content strategist. And we looked at making sure that in each group we had gender representation, but also we had representation from engineering and design, and we had note-takers who were researchers, and we did facilitation, and we were very intentional about facilitation. And I said, I want conflict to arise... Um, naturally if it happens but let's be intentional about the facilitation and let's also have people really reflect on how they're feeling about whatever it is we're asking not just about the specifics of the engineering Mm -hmm. milestones Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went to each group and I made sure there was one person that I considered to be kind of like a, a, a friendly ally in each group and I just said you know you you're on the culture council you're part of this bigger culture thing. If things start to go off the rails, help the moderator. Just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. bring that perspective. Yep. Bring it back to the human. Bring it back to the... It's a plan and a, for, for milestones, mm. but it's what are the things that are going to stop us? What are the pressures you're feeling? Mm. Um, you know, How can we get a list of things to send to leadership about what needs to be mitigated in order to achieve these goals? So very much focusing on th- th- those dynamics. Mm. Um, yeah. And practical, actionable, yes. um, how, do we, how do we address this? Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating because I think many of us, when we think about software engineering, um, and especially more at the infrastructure level, it is easy just to think about it in terms of lines of code. And, you know, it seems like the code is, yes, it's the necessary object of work, but it's the probably the easiest. Is that a little bit of an oversimplification? No matter how hard it is, it's some of these. I think it is the human skills you need. I think it is the easiest, and so, um, and especially you know, I'm again, I'm very lucky. I work on a team of unbelievably talented engineers, and their joy is coding. Mm. Now, here are the sorts of things that uh, another cultural thing that is has been interesting. So in the culture of software engineering or you know engineering and development, especially in the tech industry, we have valorized the production of things that are novel. We have valorized the critical problem solving around coding, you know, difficult or solutions to difficult problems. What we have not valorized is and, and in our team we're shifting that using mechanisms like awards mm. and recognitions mm-hmm. is things that are considered again infrastructure sub tedium um, testing effective testing end to end testing we have not valorized things like um, understanding and managing tech debt now any really big engineering effort end to end testing is critical managing tech debt is critical but a lot of folks who are brilliant engineers come in and they say, I don't want to do that because mm. that's maintenance work, that's mm. re- revision work, that's mm. bug tracking, you know, and fixing. That's not innovating and building something completely new. And we have a team culture, and again, my boss is very keen on this, and my counterpart, who's the VP of engineering, mm. um, we have 
made those a priority by team meetings. We celebrate people who are working on those things. I started a tech debt working group, mm-hmm. working with a couple of fantastic technical program managers to just, we had an engineering excellence conference and it was focused on things like tech debt, debt mm. and, and, and testing. Mm. And we have prizes and we talk about the projects that get done, that have moved something forward, that have really made sure that the whole infrastructure is robust. Mm. And there's a great book that I was just reading. Um, I'm probably going to get the name a little bit wrong, but uh, it's the, uh, the Innovation Delusion, I think is what it's called. But the premise of the book is that maintenance is so important, and yet even at like city building infrastructure stuff, grants are given for something new and novel and a shiny big thing. And actually, maintenance, like getting the sewers fixed, is really yeah. the most important yeah. thing. So, you know, within the sort of context that I work, that kind of software engineering is so important. Mm-hmm. And we've had to do a cultural shift to have people understand that this really matters um, and that innovation and coding, making something new, actually might be not as important as doing really effective code review for someone else, fixing bugs, um, finding tech debt initiatives, um, because we're in it together and we're building something that will last a long time. Yeah. I love the awards that... Um, highlight the skill required to do this work and and reframes it for people. You know, yeah. yeah. It sounds it sounds like a great team culture to have. And I know that you know, Google is often talked about in terms of their innovations around psychological safety and what makes a good leader and you know the, and the qualities that come out of the you know the, was it Project Aristotle and that yeah. that talk about many of these human skills being those core skills and the technical skills I think came in at number eight or something in the list of top ten and you've just demonstrated that with um, just your day-to-day work. But I think that the, we also hire very smart people mm. and so it's almost like the technical skills are again mm. table stakes. Yeah. Um, and also I mean I have to say that not all of the technical people are necessarily very social mm. um, because you know they have other kinds of skills so supporting them so that they can get their work done Mm. is a team effort Mm. that's that's probably one of the other dimensions of diversity is is those different social levels of skills to engage in those absolutely um that's such a great point that you brought up because we've had conversations on the team which are around respecting the communication skills of the other um, and I do the onboarding for the anybody who's coming into the team. Myself and the VP of engineering, we tag team on onboarding. And one of the big big things we talk about is the mission, the vision, the technical, you know, skills for the team. But we also talk a lot about um, we are a global team. Understand time zone differences, and you might not get an answer straight away. Understand communication differences, and that some cultures are more direct or less direct than others. Make the assumption that English is not the first language and understand that phrasing might not be quite right, you know, in in a when when you can't hear an accent in an email, but just assume that this might be a different culture, a different language, you know, uh, situation. But also understand that some people are, you know, very different in how they communicate and they might be... um, not as forthcoming. Um, they might appear to you awkward, and actually they're just quiet and, you know, mm-hmm. understand that if they're not responding straight away, um, it's because they're thinking. And they might not be a, like I was think, deep, thoughtful reflection is not a sign of inaction or lack of interest. Um, so understand these differences. Very important. So we've just had a little pause here for battery change. And Elizabeth, you were just talking about the different, what, what you were telling people in terms of onboarding and the communication, um, just to be aware. And they're, they're brilliant points. And I think they're also 
so relevant to us, to all of us who work in multicultural contexts and in academia with academic with mobility of people, we're often working with people from very different cultural backgrounds and they're good questions for all of us or good points for all of us to, to remember. I think it's very easy to bring one's own perspective and interpret um, what someone else is doing um, through one's own frame. Um, and that, you know, you said the word perspectives earlier and taking the perspective of the other and what they might be experiencing is very important and not taking things too personally. I think what's really interesting, especially when one is tired or feeling mm. vulnerable at some level, even if you don't acknowledge that you're feeling vulnerable, you think it's all about you when somebody, you know, addresses you in a particular way. And it's often just not about you. It's actually about what they're experiencing. Yeah. And they yeah. can't think about what's in your head, just like you can't in what's, their, in what's in their head. So I think those kinds of dynamics are really important. We've been looking a lot into um, neurodiversity and, mm. and cultural um, sort of factors in the workplace. Mm. And I think that, again, being aware that people have very different ways of engaging mm. socially with each other and engaging with work is um, something to be always aware of and reminding people. Yeah. yeah, and it could also be worth having the explicit conversation about you know, how do we prefer to work or, you know, like talk about, we've said in some other episodes, you know, talk about, communicate about communicating. Absolutely, yeah, all the time. So, yeah, so thinking about, you know, the management of teams, there are a couple of frameworks that I learned about that I use around explaining to people, you know, where they're operating and where a team is operating and also to address um, differences. Uh, so the first one is called the Kneffin Framework. I don't know if you've heard of no, it. No, I haven't, actually. Can you spell that? C-N-E-F-I-N. It's a Welsh word. Mm -hmm. And it was someone called uh, Dave Snowden that came up with it. And he looks at systems and complexity. Yeah. And the Kneffin Framework is really interesting. So if you imagine a grid, you know, of four blocks, um, in the bottom left block is um, chaos. Above that, um, in the top left block, is complexity. The top right block is complicated, and the bottom right block is basically routine. Mm, yes. And so what, how this applies to team culture and dynamics is that especially when things are changing, like strategy changes, one is usually in some part of, you know, this grid. And so, for example, when you've had a major change in strategy, when, you know, uh, there's been staffing and personnel changes, often you're in chaos mm. because people don't know what job they're doing, they don't know where they're fitting in, they don't know what they need to be working on. And, um, you know, that causes a sort of sense of chaos. And you need to, as a leader, think about who is feeling chaos and where the communications need to go in order to reduce that sense of chaos. So you don't have the whole organization in chaos, but you might find out where there are sub parts mm. of the chaos and look at that. And for those sub parts, you need to distinguish between complexity and complexity, to me, I'm sort of paraphrasing in Elizabethan, a very interesting framework, <laughs> but complexity to me is when the problem is really hard mm. and there may be no solutions established. So you need to do a lot of creative work. A lot of researchers we know love the complex. They mm. live in that space because mm. there's no solution. The right questions, question framing is up yes. for grabs. Yep. Um, and you're starting to really understand the space. And I, I do believe that a lot of researchers just, that's their home space. And then the product maybe of that home space is the complicated. Mm. Complicated is where you might do some problem framing, but once you've done the problem framing, it feels familiar and there may be existing solutions. So a lot of coding and a lot of development and software engineering work lives within the complicated. 
because you're like, oh, this is a problem that's isomorphic to that other one I solved. Here was a solution I tried there. I'll iterate on that and figure out if this is the right way. And then you get into the routine. And the routine is where, oh, I've seen that before. I know exactly where it is, what it is. I know how to solve that. Copy, paste code, and boom, we're gone. And you might be doing that over and over and over again. So you might be in IT infrastructure, seeing a bunch of things that are happening, and you know there's a playbook for solving this. And so for me, the playbook space is people are super comfortable. I know what I'm doing. I'm an expert. I apply known solutions to identifiable problems. In the complicated space, I think a lot of my colleagues who are software engineers, they love that. Mm. Because they're solving the problem, but there are solutions, and the innovation might be a small tweak here and there. The innovation might be integration, not necessarily a complete new solution. Now, when you get to the complex, I think that's where a lot of the um, really, really interesting things around dynamics of the team and how that works to support people um, becomes for me super interesting. Yeah. You're moving from chaos to complicated, uh, uh, to complex. Yeah. And then once you've got the sort of complex sorted out, the complicated is you, the train's on tracks, so people are working yeah. efficiently, effectively. Yeah. So when I look at these things, I, I think of back to the CSCW world, um, you know, the sort of computer-supported cooperative work world, of what are the tools you need to support communications for people who are in the routine mm. space. Mm. What different tools need to exist in the complicated space? What different tools need to exist in the complex space? And does that mean maybe that different teams need to come together to a solution mm. which requires a different kind of communication? And if you're in the chaos space, what do you need to do to quell the chaos mm to get people understanding what is complex, what is soluble, mm. what can we routinize to take off your plate. Um, so that's the way mm. I kind of think about social team organizational dynamics. Oh, that's nice. And you said you had a, an, a couple of frameworks. That you had another yeah, framework. Yeah, so the, the other framework that um, I use quite a lot is called polarity mapping. Mm. And again, you've got sort of, you know, you've got a, a, a cross and you've got four different areas and you come up with a particular question that has, you know, high internal, you know, potential tension. Mm. And the question, you know, might be, um, you know, should we invest in X going forward? And then you get people to write down the the negatives and the pluses Mm. of Mm -hmm. going forward, the negatives and the pluses, the risks and gains of going forward or not going forward. And then you have teams where there might be discord come together and write down on, on a giant piece of paper, so mm. how I usually do it, on the yeah. floor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, put things in each of these. And you don't have to attribute what you think. I mean, you can, but you don't have to. Yeah. And so I want everybody to stand around the, we're not doing this, and what are the negative consequences of no investment? Mm. What are the positive consequences of no investment? So concretely, it might be if we don't invest in, you know, managing tech debt, we won't have a resilient long-term product. Mm. If we do invest um, in it, you know, the positive consequences will be the following. So you start to lay out what are the core issues of anxiety and concern? Mm -hmm. Where do we have the ability to invest in the sub thing. So for example, how important is resilience in the long term to us? Is this a quick term prototype Mm. that we don't need to maintain? Or is this a deep infrastructure that we're going to launch into product? You know, so So taking the polarities. It's really making the trade-offs of any decision quite explicit and a shared understanding because the different perspectives as you illustrated in your example earlier, may just be focusing on one set of things because that's what's within their field of concern. Yeah. yeah. So how did, how did someone doing a psychology degree um, in the UK, in, back in whenever, end up talking, sitting here talking about you know, these large-scale technical infrastructure projects that 
you know, one of the world's biggest tech companies? Um, I love humans. <laughs> I went into psychology um, because I'm just fascinated by people. And, you know, I started off in sort of neuropsychology, mm. then went into cognitive. And then, you know, when you and I met, um, I was much more... And, and then I did sort of human factors and economics for a while. And then when you and I really met, it was much more the CSCW, you know, social spaces yeah. and frameworks for understanding how individuals bring what they bring into social situations and how they work together yeah. and how the tools that we use drive how interactions go. And we could, we've seen this with social media, that the tools often drive how the social interaction goes. Mm. And it's not, you know, deterministic in either direction. It really is this socio-technical emergence that happens. Yeah. And that's when you start to put governance structures yeah. in to, to, to move things forward. So, mm. yeah, just fascinated with people. I'm curious about, you know, you chose a path from the beginning, I think, of reading, so you, you know, that has been working in industry rather than working in academia. What, do you remember what the decision-making was around that? What factors played into that decision? It's such a good question because um, that, that, that personal pragmatics as much as anything else. Okay. So um, I was definitely on a path intending to be um, in academia. Mm -hmm. And I was doing my postdoc and really... Where were you doing your postdoc? Nottingham. Mm -hmm. And loved the teaching. I was teaching human factors and uh, people and computers, we called it. And, and I was teaching, and it wasn't part of my postdoc. I was doing it sort of as an elective because I just enjoyed it so mm. much. And I really thought I would go into academia. And then I got an offer to go to the States to work on um, collaborative virtual environments, which I had been getting a bigger and bigger interest in because I'd been um, partnering with folks in Steve Benford's uh, group and loving that and just thinking, wow, this is amazing. Mm. And so I got headhunted to go over to the States. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, I'll go there for two years <laughs> and then I'm going to come back and look for a really good academic job uh -huh. in the UK. Um, and then during that time, um, some big personal things happened um, uh, and it, it just didn't make sense for me to move mm. back to the UK. Mm. And my career was going pretty well. Um, and at Fuji Xerox and at Park, those were very, very special places. FX Pal, Fuji Xerox, Palo Alto Lab, and Park, uh, you know, amazing places of innovation where working with academics and still doing teaching was actually rewarded a great oh. deal. So you were, these were more in research yeah. positions within industry? Yeah, yeah. so these were, mm. you know, I was paid to do a bit of both. Mm. Mm. Um, and, it was, and, and partner with academics. Mm. And, you know, I did some teaching at Berkeley and, and helped PhD students. Mm. So I really had the best of both worlds. Um, and then when I went to Yahoo, same thing. Um, built a team there and we published and we got prototypes out and launched and I got a bit of a taste for that launching things mm -hmm. um, but still stayed teaching and writing um, and then I went to eBay um, loved working at eBay if there's any place to get a really deep sense of platforms and infrastructures and how they affect the dynamics of interaction um, it's eBay and places like eBay. And you start to understand how the physical world of goods interacts with the digital platforms and e-commerce and what is value? How do you attach value to artifacts? Um, you know, eBay was so much fun. We did all of this ethnographic work on thrift shopping <laughs> and on collectibles and, you know, obsession, ob obsessions. Um, and how the platform with personalization algorithms and recommendations changes the way people behave and interact with each other and the value um, that, that they find. Mm. I've got a funny story to tell you. I was talking to some folks. Uh, there used to be, I, don't, I haven't uh, used it very much recently, there used to be an a internal email for buyers and sellers on eBay. 
And it wasn't used very much, but somebody had done some research and said, the only thing that people ever use this email for is to complain. And it's just about complaining, buyers and sellers. And I said, I don't believe that. I just don't believe it. Um, I think people, there are phatic communications, which are positive emotions that people share. And I said, I tell you what, if I, if I can go in and get a data set similar to yours or use yours and extend it, and if I can do an analysis to show that there is like even a tiniest amount of just emails that say thank you so much and that have a positive affect around them, um, you know, you owe me a crate of wine. <laughs> <laughs> And we went in and we found out that it was five or six percent of the emails were not, uh, they were not just transactional, but they were phatic. I'd been told that these were, they didn't have any information content, so nobody would do them. And I said, it's not about information content, it's about connection Connection. and feeling. Mm. Anyway, I won my creative wine. Mm. (laughs) Um, So, but back to your original question. And then I went to Google. Yeah. And that was when I made a bit of a shift because I started to really get into the deep infrastructure Mm. and develop a tooling. Because at eBay, it had become so evident to me that many of the things that I wanted to change at the interface and interaction level were actually immutable because of the infrastructure level. Mm. Um, So we were putting patches on the top of an infrastructure that was making, you know, it just hard to do the social things that I wanted. So that was when I took a turn into doing, you know, infrastructure design, Mm. um, material design as a sort of guidelines for how you, you know, change the interaction Mm. style. And I became obsessed with designer and developer experiences because I felt like a lot of the things we were fixing at the UI level, the interaction layer, were because certain values were inscribed in the very tools that were used. You know, there were forcing functions. Um, and that actually, if you could change those, mm. then mm. You, might, you might have a ripple yeah. effect. So there's sort of, there's sort of a, a red thread in the way the interests have developed and built on each other. And I'm curious about, about the transitions to the different companies. Were they... You know, to what extent were they strategically planned versus opportunistic? And you know, I think most of it was opportunistic, to be yeah. honest. Um, so getting the job in California was, I was just, again, very lucky because my postdoc was not on collaborative virtual environments. Yeah. Um, but working with Steve's team, I just, it was just a passion. I was just really interested. Yeah. And I started working on that with um, another person called Dave Snowden, a different Dave yes. Snowden. Yep. and um, Who I thought you first met when you said Dave Snowden. Yeah, different Dave Snowden. Framework. And he and I had started a conference called Collaborative Virtual Environments, which then we brought into ACM, actually, which lasted a couple of years, but unfortunately didn't continue. And people had heard about that. And so Fuji Xerox had wanted somebody to come in and help them build... Um, communications between the researchers Mm. in Japan and the researchers in California. And my name had come up because I'd already been funded for my PhD by Park. So they knew me and they knew I was doing this interest in, you know, uh, collaborative environments. And so it was my hobby thing, not my postdoc, that got me noticed and so I went to Fuji mm. Xerox. And then, of course, I went back to Park because yeah. Park was working in Japan, and so I had all this experience. But the big change, which, again, was sort of opportunistic, was going to Yahoo. Um, and the reason I did that was because I'd never worked in the consumer space because all of the other stuff had really been enterprise collaboration mm. software yeah. and experiences. Yeah. And I thought, I'm really interested in com- consumer space. Mm. And... I had been identified as somebody who um, had done enough in that kind of um, experience space that they thought they'd take a chance on me. Um, and I got hired by Prabhakar Raghavan, who is now you know, SVP at Google, and worked in his lab, the Yahoo Research Labs, mm. um, which was a fantastic experience working with 
you know, economists and machine learning people and um, really, really formative experience for me. Mm. And the eBay thing came up again because I'd done so much work on both the practical work with, you know, um, collaboration software, but also all of the consumer work. Mm. And so the e-commerce platform has a bit of both. All the threads that just sort of weave together in different ways. Looking back, would you do anything differently? Oh, that's a good question. Would I do anything differently? No. Because you talk about it not being strategic or, you know, and you use the word lucky, you know, and... and No, I don't think I'd do anything different. I mean, I think I have... I mean, I think a different story, which is a shadow story, Mm. which you probably don't have time for now, but we can talk about it at some point, is all the jobs I've been offered that I turned down. Mm. So that's... So that was going to be sort of my next question is how did you decide that this was the time to move or what were the what were the qualities or characteristics that you were looking for that made you go yes this is good and you have intimated some of that in terms of the topic areas and I'm wondering what other qualities given you talked in the beginning about the culture at Google and it's you and it fits um, and so and now you're talking about the jobs you turned down can you just talk more about some of the more intangibles around that decision making process yeah, um, so I'll go into the States. I'll be extremely honest, you know, around that. The job is fascinating. Right? And, you know, it was about, wow, I'm going to get immersed in a culture that's, you know, I, I love people and I love thinking globally. I'm going to be immersed in a culture that's like talking about Japan and the States and that collaboration. What does collaboration at that scale look like with those cultural dynamics and differences so that to me was just super interesting um and also california i was like ooh, california and at that time i had two other job offers to stay in the uk uh-huh. and um i turned both of those down primarily because of location um because they were not in places that i wanted to live in in the uk and i looked at the opportunity, not only of living in California, but this global thing mm. of me having a connection into Japan, which I'd always been fascinated by. And it was just, wow, okay, um, this is a place I'm fascinated by. I'd love to, that's a bigger picture. So that choice was really much more about the ambitions for my own growth. Mm. Whereas both of the other roles mm. um, would have been sort of more of the same. Um, I would have been teaching and I would have been running courses Mm. and doing similar research to what I was already doing. And California seemed like a challenging move, but a great one. Mm. But the task that I was being asked to do was huge. So, you know, it sounds like when you talk about growth and challenging, you know, there's also the connotations of that being a bit scary. (gasps) You know, hold your breath and what am I getting into? Is there there a point of sort of... enough challenge or too much challenge or um no you know i think it's like i I can tell when something is not going to challenge me i have i have this sort of way of thinking about um you know i'm somebody who likes to have challenge Mm -hmm. and if i can see that within six months to a year the train will be on the tracks i understand it'll be in that I, bottom right quadrant yes, of the exactly. Framework. I will understand what is happening here. Um, I know my processes, and and the problems look complicated. They don't look like chaos <laughs> or complexity. Mm. And so, it, when I think about, you know, my job choices in that particular instance, it was much more uh, the moving to America. I'm terrified. Mm. I don't know that I can do this. Mm. I also take a leap of faith into lots of things where I'm like, I, I don't think I would ever take a job where I, I thought I know how to do it. Oh, interesting. I, I, I take a job where I'm like, I could crash and burn. Um, when I went to Google um, to move into this developer space, infrastructure, um, I think I said to a couple of friends, I said, it's going to be a wild ride. I'll be there for a year. But I will learn a lot more about this question I had from eBay around 
what are what are the factors in the infrastructure mm. that are really stymieing me change mm. the interaction and the UI level? How does an infrastructure work? Um, who gets to decide? And and I'll give you an example of one of the things that happened at eBay. But who gets to decide? Oh, right down at the development level, let's go in and have a look there. And I just thought I'd be at Google for a year. <laughs> and now at Google, I've set up one, two, three groups and transformed another group. So each one has been more challenging mm. and more difficult mm. and further from my deep domain expertise. So what you've been talking about seems to require very reflective stance in being aware of what lights you up, what drives you. So the people, the collaboration, the global aspects, wanting challenge rather than comfort and um, that my word, not yours you know, there, but just that, that insight into what you want and the willingness to take risks. And you talked about, um, you, you wrote a, an article that I still often give to students for the Interactions magazine some years ago on imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. Uh, how much of that was out of a personal experience versus what you saw? Around? Oh, it's completely personal experience. So that article was written for a couple of reasons. I did a lot of research on burnout mm. and imposter syndrome mm. um, and self-doubt. And that was because a very, very close friend of mine, incredibly talented person, completely burned out right. and sort of left what they were doing, um, was in a pretty bad place. Um, and that precipitated me doing research and reflecting on myself. I've always felt... I mean, imposter syndrome is an interesting thing because I, I, I've sort of come to thinking differently about yeah, it now. And there's critique about it, the yeah. syndrome language and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's another yeah. conversation. Yeah. But, no, I always think I'm useless. Yeah. <laughs> Still? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, but, but I, don't, I, I, you know, I, don't think, I don't think that's bad. I think mm. that, hmm, there's a whole lot I don't know. And, and I think I don't... I think I've gone meta... Mm. which is I just assume that I'm always not knowing something. So you're a comfortable... Oh, whose quote is it about becoming comfortable with being a professional not-knower? Yeah, exactly. I can't remember who said that, but it's a lovely quote. Like becoming... Yeah, it's, it's a journey of not yeah. knowing anything and becoming comfortable being, you know, not knowing stuff. Yeah, and it's not that I'm comfortable every day. Mm. But I think, you know, back to the routine or the comfort I I think if I didn't feel like I didn't belong and I didn't have enough knowledge um, then I'd be bored and I think that also drives my deep belief that you know in a team you don't need to know everything yes it's actually a collective and you know I don't know how to code at the kernel level. I never will, and I don't have to. No. Because I'm working with people who are so unbelievably brilliant that I can ask them a question and they know how to abstract to a level that I understand. So I now understand how kernels work and how different operating systems work. And I read a book on operating systems, mm. and I think I read a third of it. And then I skimmed the rest. But I have a mental model. Mm. And I was terrified when I picked up that book because I picked it up with the intention of reading and understanding it. And then I put it down with the knowledge that I don't need to understand it all. I need just to understand enough to know who to ask. Mm. And I need to understand enough to drive my deep respect of the practice and scholarship and expertise of the people I work with and for whom I am trying to build a culture of collaboration tools which mm. makes them more effective. Mm. I can feel the weight off your shoulders with that insight. So the, the, the lovely um, space of being challenged, feeling a bit daunted and, you know, like it, looking forward to the learning. Yeah. 
yeah. that, that's, that entails. Yeah. I was going to tell you the example of uh, eBay where I started to really understand. And this is a sort of slightly tangential example. I'd had somebody working for me, and we were looking at, we were gathering some data. And it was around um, social media likes. And there was this blip because there were a load of social media likes. And then in August, I can't remember the exact month, there were no social media likes. <laughs> and so I went in and I said, did, did Is everyone some- on holidays? <laughs> did somebody take the icon down? Did, did they change the interface? Because it's the same for me. What happened? And it turned out that somebody had gone in and they were a new engineer who were doing optimizations. And they decided that this particular column of data collection could be slowing things down. And so there was a performance optimization that they just took out all of the stuff that we'd put in to gather the data in order to evaluate the effectiveness <laughs> of this thing. And so I said, so why is an optimization engineer not talking about why is that thing there and what, who is it important for? Um, and then I thought to myself, I need to understand optimization engineering, you know, <laughs> because it didn't change the interface, but it might have, but it was a, maybe a microsecond, I don't even know. Yeah. But it changed the whole research program we had in place because someone had gone in at the infrastructure. And there were so many examples of that where I'd say, can we just change this? And they go, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Yeah. And I said, well, why not? Oh, because it's, uh, uh, it's right mm. at the bottom level. Mm. I cannot change that. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to that example that you gave almost at the very beginning that their perspective and what the, what their field of concern is and bubbling up what might be your shared agendas and how you can mutually yeah. address them. Yeah, I'm, I'm just conscious of our time and we, yeah. we need to be in another meeting now and I'm, I'd love to keep talking because there's so many th- other things I wanted to talk to you about. In just sort of wrapping up, are there... Any final thoughts that you have or things that you'd really like to just sort of share or, or talk about that we haven't touched upon yet? I'm not sure there's anything particular. There's yeah. something more of a generality, really, which comes back to um, Kai and us being here at Kai mm. in 2023, um, which is, you know, find the community where you're comfortable, even if it's a sub-community, um, within a Kai kind of situation, but um, find the community, and I always call it the you know find the the me people, the we people, mm-hmm. um, and um, and you know find the people who are your your team. Um, so you know when I say me people in this instance, I mean who are the people who actually care about me, who I care about, and who are going to boost me when I'm feeling terrified, who I'm able to talk to and just use as sounding boards, and who reciprocate that and share when they're feeling vulnerable with me, because I think that makes us feel human and in it together, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's about an emotion or about a specific piece of domain expertise. But find the people that you feel you can be open and vulnerable with around not knowing and around feeling anxiety. Um, and, and you know, my career has been full of those people. Mm. I've been very lucky um, and I've been um, hopefully helpful to others um, and I've received so much help and that's why coming back to Kai, mm. this is sort of home. This is my village. Um, this is where I am. Mm. I feel loved. Mm. <laughs> I feel um, challenged, um, and I have people around me who are willing to tell me when I'm just probably not right. Mm. Maybe I would like to rethink that. Yes. So find the people who also will challenge you with your best interests mm. in their hearts. Mm. So there's a becoming better together. Yes, exactly. In that, in that, in that sense, exactly. Learning together. Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth, there have just been so many nuggets and insights and pearls of wisdom here to reflect on and take away that I'll be thinking about for a long time. And I know I'll really enjoy processing this and listening back to it. So thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for being part of this community. We really value that you 
do love people, 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 and you know the, what you bring to the community. You know, through that very people orientation that you have is just so important to so many of us, and what you contribute. And I think recognised in the award that you received here as well, which is about the service, but it's really about the leadership that you've shown and the role modelling for how to be a me, we person in this community. So. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.